Today's scripture reading will be from Hebrews chapter 1 and 2, verses 1 through 4. Thank you. You can find it on page 1001 in your pew Bible. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son? And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will, not, will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they all not ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It is declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. This is the word of God. Thanks, Esther. Please keep your Bible open and let's pray as we look at this beautiful text. Lord, this is your word that we have heard read this morning. It is your word that we now look to with eyes and hearts of expectation, eager to hear from you. And so, Lord, we pray that we would. We, we know you are speaking, Lord. We ask that we would hear. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see you, hearts ready to be changed by your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we introduced our new series through the book of Hebrews last Sunday, uh, what we're calling Jesus is Better, because 
That's the major point of the book of Hebrews, that, that Christ is supreme, that he is superior over everything, especially the old covenant of Israel and all that that entails. And while we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, uh, we don't know which city or church it was originally sent to, we do know what the author of Hebrews was worried about, what, what burdened him to the point of writing this letter, because he tells us several times throughout. He was worried about followers of Christ falling away, not finishing well, wavering in their confession, failing to receive the prize. As chapter 2, verse 1 puts it, he was worried about the church drifting away from Christ. Now, full disclosure, I believe strongly in the eternal security of the Christian. That once we are saved, we are always saved. I think Scripture teaches that quite clearly, that salvation is not something that we do. It's what God does, and therefore we can't undo that. That's his work, and he will carry his children faithfully to the end. They will persevere by his grace. So I'm I'm quite confident in, in Scripture teaching that, but Scripture also teaches us not to presume upon God's grace, not to think that just because at some point I prayed a prayer or I agree intellectually with all the right stuff that I can just now coast and not worry about this. Scripture calls us to watch our life and our doctrine, and it warns us multiple times not to fall away from the faith, not to forfeit grace, not to let ourselves drift. And so both of those things can be true at the same time, that God is in charge of our destination, and yet he calls us not to presume upon his grace not to fall away. And one of the easiest ways to, to, to fall away, or as, as again, it put, he puts it in chapter 2, verse 1, to drift from the faith. One of the easiest ways to do that is to take our eyes off of Jesus, to lose sight of who he truly is and what he's truly done. Uh, sometimes because we have an inflated view of something else, we think it's much greater than it really is. And so we're drawn to that instead of Christ. We're going to see examples of that in this book. But sometimes we allow ourselves to drift because we have an accurate view of other things, but an inaccurate or a low view of Jesus. So so we have good doctrine, good views of good things, but we fail to translate that into an even higher view of Jesus, who's better. That's what's happening in our passage this morning as the author begins his first extended argument, making a case for the supremacy of Christ uh, here, specifically in comparison with angels. He starts with the subject of angels. We don't necessarily think or talk a lot about angels today. Uh, We know from Scripture that they are glorious creatures. Uh, They play a significant role throughout God's plan of redemption. You find 
angels at work in key moments in both the Old and the New Testament. Some of them uh, continuously worship God in his presence. That's their main job. You can think of the great uh, throne room scenes from Isaiah 6 or Revelation 4 and 5 of these heavenly creatures falling down before the throne night and day, giving glory to God. Sometimes uh, these angels minister to believers. God sends them on a mission, either to protect or to guide or even to deliver. You think of uh, Peter when he's in prison in Acts 5, and the angel comes and opens the door of the prison and ushers him out. Angels will be agents of God's judgment when Christ comes again. They have a future role yet to play. But the essential function of angels, according to Scripture, is that they are God's messengers. They are God's heavenly messengers. In fact, that's what the the Hebrew and Greek words that are translated angel, that's what both of those words mean. It means messenger. So you think of uh, the angels appearing to announce God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 18, or you think of the the glorious announcements to Mary and Joseph when uh, the incarnation was about to happen, or or of these angelic creatures taking people like Daniel or Ezekiel or John on this kind of heavenly vision tour of what's to come. Angels, their essential role is to deliver a message from God. And one of the greatest, most foundational messages that, that was ever delivered by God's angels, according to Galatians 3 and Acts 7, was Israel's covenant at Sinai. They were involved in delivering that covenant to God's people. And that's probably why the author of Hebrews starts by talking about angels here. Um, scholars have long wrestled with uh, the reason that they receive so much attention up front in this book and why the author feels he needs to make such a, a strong case against uh, a case for the superiority of Christ over the angels. Uh, was this church that he's writing to being tempted to worship angels? That's one idea. We talked about that possibility last week. Was there some new religious teaching like you see in Colossians 2.18? Were they being influenced by early Judaism's infatuation with angelic creatures. If you read any of the intertestamental literature, uh, it is just, I mean, that's a big deal for them. A lot of the books that came about during those times are really caught up with the role of angels in, in the ongoing uh, work of God. Was there a temptation to view Jesus as simply an angel, uh, to kind of minimize Christ, uh, undo his divinity, rather than treating him as the divine son of God? Would that help them uh, escape persecution from Judaism? If they could just kind of get rid of the whole Jesus is God stuff and he's just an angel. Was that where the pressure came from? And and at the end of the day, we're not 100% sure, but as I've been wrestling with this this week, it seems like the most likely reason he starts with kind of this big, Uh, diatribe on the the supremacy of Jesus over angelic creatures was the angel's role in delivering the old covenant to Moses and and Israel. Because as we go throughout the book, one of the major burdens of this author is to warn readers against reverting back to that old covenant, going back to Judaism, 
in order to escape persecution. And, and so he has made it his goal to show how Jesus is better than that covenant at every turn. He's better than the prophets who bore witness to it. Chapter 1, we looked at last week. He's better than the, the, the servant Moses who mediated it. That's chapter 3. He's better than the priests who applied that covenant, chapter 4 and following. And according to our passage, Jesus is better than the angels who delivered that covenant, the messengers who delivered it. And and it seems like in chapter 2, verse 2, that's what the message uh, that he's referring to is talking about, this old covenant with its which proved to be reliable with every transgression receiving a just retribution. And so, and it's important to ask why why talk about angels? Because again, for many of us, it's it's not like we're worried about that. You know, very few of us today are tempted to kind of treat angels as more important than Jesus. So what was the actual threat? What was the actual temptation they were dealing with? And how does that threat relate to us today? It's why we have to ask those kinds of questions. And it it appears that the author of Hebrews is not so much correcting the Hebrews' false view of angels or chastising them for some sort of misguided practice. He never criticizes the angels. He doesn't build Jesus up by tearing angels down. Rather, he leaves them in their place with all of their proper honor and respect as messengers of the old covenant and then shows that as good as they are, Jesus is still better. That's what he's doing here in this opening argument. And because Jesus is superior to those very good angels, that means his message is all the more urgent for us to hear. His message of salvation. And and his argument really begins in verse 4, a text we looked at last week, which is why we kind of took a running start during our scripture reading. We started at the beginning because his argument begins in verse 4 where he declares the son's superiority over angels. And then in verses 5 to 14, he proves his claim. He shows, he offers evidence, seven Old Testament quotations uh, to prove that Jesus really is better than angels. And then finally in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, he gets to the implications. Why does this matter? What's at stake in understanding Jesus' superiority to God's angelic messengers? And so, uh, look again, chapter 1, verse 4, get a running start into our passage uh, with the declaration of the Son's superiority over angels. As we saw last week, the author wastes no time getting to the heart of his argument. There's no greetings, how are you, I'm praying for you. He just starts preaching from verse 1. And, and preaching that Jesus is a better word, that he's better than the prophets because he's the full and final revelation of God. And as he concludes that, that opening statement, uh, he says, starting in the middle of verse 3, after making purification for sins, Jesus, the word, the son, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So one of the results of Christ's redeeming work as he reveals God's great salvation, one of the results is that he has become better than the angels, 
more superior, just as the name he inherits is greater than theirs, um, which is something we see several other places in Scripture. It's basically what Paul says in Ephesians 1, that God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, all authority and power and dominion, even angelic power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So Jesus is better than angels. That's his very clear, very simple claim. But anybody can make a claim. How do we know that this is true? What's the evidence? I could stand up here and say, I'm the smartest man alive, or, or I'm the, the best basketball player in the world. That's a claim. Is there any evidence to back that up? Those of you who know me know there's not. So what's the evidence for this claim that Jesus is better than angels? Uh, Evidence matters. And so like an attorney defending his client's name, the author approaches the bench in verses 5 to 14, and he offers seven exhibits, seven pieces of evidence, seven Old Testament quotations as evidence of Jesus' superiority. And the first two make the same point. The son's royal identity as Messiah. That's his first point. The son's royal identity as Messiah. Verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Angels are great. No argument there. But which angel was anointed Messiah or designated Son of God? That's something none of them can claim. And and that's what both of these Old Testament texts are about. The first one is from Psalm 2, verse 7, and the second from 2 Samuel 7, 14. In both of those passages, we have these beautiful, foundational promises of God to raise up one of David's descendants to be the anointed king, the Messiah king. And this anointed king will enjoy a special relationship with God. He will be to him a son. Uh, He will be to him a son. And through this son, this Messiah, God will accomplish his plan of redemption. That's the great promise. Angels have the privilege of announcing that plan of redemption, but they don't get to accomplish it. That's not their job. Only the Son has that honor. Only the Son is anointed Messiah. And no other creature can make that claim. And so that's the first point, that the Son has this royal identity as Messiah. But not only that, as the Messiah, he is worthy of the angels' worship. And that's the next point, that's verse 6, the Son's rightful worship by angels. And again, when he brings forth the firstborn, into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Let all God's angels worship the Son. And here the author quotes Deuteronomy 32, which is the song of Moses. Uh, and, And it's this great declaration of the greatness of God, really in contrast to the unfaithfulness of Israel. But what's interesting about this passage Uh, from Deuteronomy, and and really several of the passages that we see here this morning, is that 
this verse that he's quoting and applying to the Son, if you go back to the context in Deuteronomy 32, that verse is about God. It's not specifically about the Messiah. So the author of Hebrews has no problem taking a promise or a verse about God and applying it directly to the Son. That is huge. That would get you killed in Judaism. That would be considered blasphemy. But the, the author has no problem doing it, and, and the believers in Christ have no problem receiving it because they know that Jesus is the divine, eternal Son of God. We're, we're back to the Trinity again. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so Deuteronomy 32 promises a day when God is going to vindicate his people. And the angels will worship him in response. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods, all heavenly beings. For he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on their adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. So according to Hebrews... So God God promises he's going to vindicate his people. According to Hebrews, it is in bringing his firstborn son into the world that he accomplishes that vindication. And the angels see it and rejoice. And if you think about the incarnation, what happened when the son was born? What, What did the heavenly host do? They worshiped God. The angels worshiped the son. And so that's two, the the son, his rightful worship by the angels. Uh, The next piece of evidence addresses the nature of angels in order to set up a contrast with the son. So verse 7, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. And, And it seems like the point here is on the angels' lower status as created servants. So they have a lower status than the sun. Uh, Psalm 104, which is what he quotes here, is a beautiful psalm celebrating God specifically with his work in creation. He's the creator. Uh, Verse 3, he lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers or his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. He sets the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. And he goes on to continue to describe the the beauty and glory of God's creation. But here you see angels find their place in that description. And it's a beautiful, glorious role. But it's depicted here as part of God's created order. So, So it's good. But they're created. And they're servants. They're not ruling. They're serving which is a wonderful thing, but it's not the same thing as being the king or being the creator. And Jesus, the son, is both of those things. He's the king and the creator. So angel's got a great role, but it's not as good as the son. And we see his role as king and creator in the next two Old Testament references. So uh, number four, the son's righteous reign as a divine king. Verses 8 and 9, he, again, quotes from the Psalms. Most of his quotes here come from the Psalms. This one's Psalm 45. But of the Son, 
in contrast to the angels who are created servants of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Psalm 45 is an ode to Israel's king. It's this psalm kind of celebrating God's favor on his king. And and what's remarkable about that ode is that in verse 6 of Psalm 45, the king being celebrated is addressed as God, which is one of those head scratchers. Uh, Why in the world is a human king being called God in that psalm? Uh, Reminds you a little bit of the promise of Isaiah 9-6, where this son of David will be called mighty God. Uh, And and so it's one of these things where you kind of scratch your head about what exactly is happening there until you see how God fulfills it. That there does come a king who is indeed God. You can say that only of the Son, only of Jesus, that he is both God and that his God has set him on the throne. That's only true of one person. It's true of the Son. And he reigns with righteousness and justice at the right hand of his Father. Number five, not only does he reign as a righteous king, he also reigns eternally as the unchanging creator. Again, that sets him apart over the angels. He is the Son's eternal reign as, an unchange, as the unchanging creator. So verse 10, Hebrews 1.10, quoting Psalm 102. And you, Lord, laid the foundation. Again, stop there for a second. Of the Son, he says, you, Lord. And Lord in the Old Testament is unambiguously talking about God. He is talking about, he has no problem addressing the Son as God. That's huge. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, the the creation, it'll perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them up, like a garment they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. There are two things that that God never shares with his creation in the Old Testament. Two things that mark his uniqueness as the divine. He never shares his throne, and he never shares his work in creation. Two things we see God sharing with Jesus in this chapter are his throne and his work in creation. There's something unique about this son. He shares this unique divine identity with the Father. His divinity is on full display, just as his humanity is going to be on full display in the rest of the chapter. He's the eternal, unchanging king. But there's one more point he makes, verse 13, which quotes Psalm 110, and that's a psalm we're going to see again and again in the book of Hebrews. Some have suggested that you know, if Hebrews is a sermon, Psalm 110 was the text being preached. Um, it's that foundational. But he quotes it here, and he says, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? So, so he ends just the way he began. He, he started with this rhetorical question, To which angel has God ever said? 
And that's how he ends here, this time highlighting the victorious reign of the Son next to the Father. He has a a victorious reign with the Father. God uses his angels to accomplish all sorts of things. But at the end of the day, none of them ever take a seat next to him on his throne. Only the Son has that honor. So angels are great, but the Son is greater. And and so finally, verse 14, he summarizes the nature, role, and, and the purpose of angelic messengers. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Angels have their place. They're ministering spirits. That's their nature. They have a role. They have a mission. They are sent by God. That is no small thing. And they have a purpose to serve those who are to inherit salvation, to serve us. They are God's messengers sent for our sake. But what if something better than angels is here? What if there's a better messenger in our midst? If the the church that's being written to, if they were so eager to honor and listen to the message that comes by angels, how much more ought they be eager to listen to the better messenger, the Son? And those are the implications that the author now draws out in chapter 2, 1 through 4. The implications of the Son's superiority to angels. A little over a year ago, um, I was down in North Carolina, and a friend took me to a nice restaurant. Uh, it wasn't a coat and tie, fancy crystal kind of nice, it, uh, but the menu, the menu was extravagant. I think we had something like eight or nine courses during that meal. I know, it was ridiculous. And every time the wait staff would appear with another course, I thought, okay, here's the main, main dish, and only to realize when they appeared with another thing 10 minutes later that that was just an appetizer and, and, and we were still waiting. As you might guess, we were singing the praises of that wait staff. We were thrilled every time we saw them, uh, happy to receive from them whatever they delivered. But imagine if for the next course, instead of sending the wait staff to deliver it, the chef herself appears to deliver that course in person. And when she arrives and you see it, you realize everything you'd eaten so far really was just an appetizer. This is the main deal. If that were to happen, what should be your response to the chef? If you're willing to eat whatever the waiter delivers, how much more eager should you be when the chef herself brings the food out. That chef is worthy of greater honor and attention as the designer and creator of that feast. That doesn't mean the wait staff is unworthy or that in order to build the chef up, you have to tear the waiters down. Rather, whatever respect you rightly had for the wait staff during the appetizers, that ought to be translated to the chef who is even more worthy of respect and therefore worthy of you enjoying the food that she delivers. 
That's the argument that the author of Hebrews is making. He's appealing to the rightful respect that readers have for angels, but then showing how Christ far exceeds that. He exceeds that standard and thus is deserving of even greater respect and attention. So listen again to chapter 2. Jesus is better than angels, therefore... We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or or disobedience received a just retribution, the appetizers were great. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation, the main course delivered by the Son himself? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So again, he's not tearing down angels in order to build up Jesus. He leaves them in their place with all the proper respect as ministers of the covenant, as messengers of the covenant, and then shows how Jesus is a better messenger with a better message. How really, truly, everything that Israel had been enjoying from the mouth of angels up to this point was a mere appetizer. And the sun has now arrived with the main course, a great salvation. That's his point. And this great salvation was declared by Christ himself. It was attested by eyewitnesses to his death and resurrection, and it was corroborated by great signs and wonders. And so because Jesus is the better messenger, his message of salvation is all the more urgent. It's all the more urgent. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard from him, lest we drift away from it. Lest we drift away. Because drifting is a real threat. Nobody walks away from Jesus overnight. Nobody in this ancient church was going to go to you know, bed one night having delighted in Jesus as the Son of God and resting in His glory and sufficiency on the cross. Nobody in this ancient church was going to go to bed thinking, feeling, believing that and then wake up the next day deciding, actually, the Messiah hasn't come and if we're serious about God, we need to go back to the Old Covenant. That doesn't happen overnight. That happens through drift through slowly loosening our grip on Christ and drifting away, like forgetting to tie up a boat to the dock. It doesn't move right away, but after a while, through the wind or the currents, it just kind of slowly heads out. We take our eyes off Jesus. We loosen our grip on the gospel. We allow ourselves to become distracted or disinterested or disengaged, self-dependent, such that over time we've drifted so far out to sea that we can no longer see the shore of Christ's sufficiency. We begin to question whether we ever really believed it, and we think that the only way home is to row ourselves ashore according to the law. That's the risk. We cannot afford to neglect such a great salvation in Christ, to go back to 
relying on ourselves. And so we need to do two things in response to this passage this morning. First, we need to ask ourselves honestly, where am I prone to drift? Where am I? Where are we as a church? Where am I prone to drift? Where am I tempted to take my eyes off Jesus, loosen my grip, and risk being drawn away? Perhaps I have an inflated view of something else. I think that that something else is better than it is and better than Jesus. Money, power, sex, recreation, achievement, fame, stuff, you know, fill in the blank. And, and so the rest and the peace or the significance and security and satisfaction that ought to come and can really only truly come from Christ alone, I end up looking for all of that in something else because I have an inflated view of it. I think it's better than it is and that it can answer my desires. And so I drift things that ultimately disappoint and slowly destroy us. So that's one thing to consider. But perhaps, as in the case of our passage, perhaps I have an accurate view of something that's truly good, but I fail to translate that into a superior view of Jesus. Angels are good. They didn't have an inflated view of angels. Coming to church is good. It's a good thing to do. Reading my Bible is good. So maybe I have a good, healthy view of the importance of gathering for church or the importance of reading the Scriptures, but I fail to let that high view of good things translate into an even higher view of the Savior whom it's all about. I know what I'm supposed to do that it's good, and I do it, but I'm not engaged with Christ in it. Going through the motions. My faith becomes impersonal. Meaning, even if Jesus hadn't risen from the grave, I'd still be going through these motions. Even if he wasn't my living Savior, I'd still know what to do. I'm not really engaging with Christ in it. And that is just as dangerous as being drawn away by lesser things. To be comfortable with good things that are disconnected from Jesus. You can drift with good theology and doing good things for God if you allow those doctrines and deeds to become detached from the person of Christ and his supreme worthiness. And so what do we do with hearts that are so prone to drift? The second response to this passage is to look again to Jesus. To look again to our superior Savior. The best way to prevent drift is to pay careful attention to Christ. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift away from it. Much closer attention to the salvation we have in Him. The main course that Christ delivers is what the author calls such a great salvation. And it is. 
because it decisively deals with everything that's wrong in this broken world. The sin that stains the image of God in us, that separates us from our maker, that corrupts our hearts and decays our relationships and ruins our lives. The brokenness and injustice that pervade this world as a result. The death that comes from sin that hangs over this world like a cloud, like a, like a, a veil. The guilt and shame that we bear secretly. The fear. The sorrow. The loneliness. Everything that, that, that's wrong with this world as it is. Jesus came to accomplish such a great salvation as to deal with all of it. All of it. There is no person beyond the scope of Christ's love. There is no sin beyond the reach of His grace. No sorrow that He can't understand or share. Nothing sad that will not come untrue someday through the salvation he has accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection. And some of that great salvation we enjoy already. Through faith in Christ, we can already be forgiven, justified, declared not guilty. We can already be reconciled to God, made new. Sin's penalty has been paid in full. And its power has been broken. In Christ, we are no longer slaves to sin. In Christ, we have a new life, a new hope, a new family, a new identity, a new purpose, a new inheritance, a new power to follow God by the Holy Spirit. And all of that is true today for the believer in Christ. But we are not yet home. There's more to come. The presence of sin remains. Sadness and brokenness remain. The temptation to drift, that remains. And so while we wait for our Lord's return in the day when His great salvation will be complete, we must keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. The author and perfecter of our faith, the one who designed it, the one who completed it, who for the joy set before him, that glorious day when all will be made new, endured the cross, embraced the suffering, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We have a great salvation in Christ. And because he is a better messenger, his message of salvation is all the more urgent. We cannot take our eyes off Jesus. We must pay close, careful attention to refuse to neglect that great salvation lest we drift away. Let's pray. Gracious Father, may we never let ourselves become bored 
with the salvation we have in Jesus. May we never let the good things we do for you become detached from the person we're doing it for. Lord, would you keep us from drifting? Would you tether us to the cross that no matter what winds or waves or or taking our attention off of the storm, whatever distractions, that nothing would be able to send us astray. Not if we're tethered to the cross. So keep our eyes fixed on your Son. Thank you that we have such a great salvation through Him. May we not neglect it. May we not take it for granted. May we rejoice and exult in the salvation we have in Christ. May we be amazed daily by this great salvation in Him. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.